Welcome to On the Middle East, the podcast of the award-winning media service, El Monitor. I'm Andrew Parasoliti, president of El Monitor, and each week I speak with the diplomats, political, business, and thought leaders that are shaping the latest trends and making news in the Middle East. This week, we have a special treat, a fantastic interview with former U.S. Secretary of Defense and two-term Republican Senator from Nebraska, Chuck Hagel. We'll talk about Syria, Iraq, and the region, and Egypt, including some amazing historical and probably new details about the Obama administration's decision-making at the time of the coup against President Morsi by General Abdul Fattah el-Sisi, the current president of Egypt. And Chuck Hagel's also going to tell us why he's backing Joe Biden for president, all after this short break. Before the government was overthrown by Sisi, um, I called him. I took the initiative to call him because we had, we had said to each other, we'll stay in touch. And I called him and I said, uh, General, uh, uh, we're hearing some very disturbing news coming out of Egypt. That's an excerpt from my conversation with former Secretary of Defense and U.S. Senator Chuck Hagel. For those of you who don't know Chuck Hagel, and I'd be surprised if you didn't, he served as the 24th Secretary of Defense, that is from 2013 to 2015, and is the only Vietnam veteran and the first enlisted combat veteran to hold that cabinet position. Now, I need to start by mentioning that Chuck Hagel is a war hero for his service in the Army in Vietnam. His official Pentagon portrait, painted by his brother, Mike Hagel, includes the Combat Infantryman badge. Hagel also received two Purple Hearts for being wounded in combat, the Army Commendation Medal for Sustained Act of Heroism, Acts of Heroism and Meritorious Service, and the Vietnamese Cross of Gallantry that's presented by the former government of South Vietnam to recognize deeds of valor and heroism. I had the honor of working for Senator Hagel as his foreign policy advisor from 2001 to 2005, including during the debate and vote on the Iraq War Resolution. I saw up close Hagel's commitment to U.S. national security policy, to international alliances and institutions, to building relationships with world leaders to advance U.S. interests, and to being wary about rushing to committing U.S. troops into combat or to wars without clear objectives, perhaps informed by his experiences in Vietnam. Hegel was and always has been a regular visitor to the region, and on all his travels, he made a point to spend time with our men and women in uniform serving in conflict zones in the Middle East and around the world. Now, by my quick count and just my four years on the staff, we visited at least 13 countries in the Middle East, meeting with heads of government and state, civil society leaders, and more. I need to mention two memorable trips. One was to the Kurdistan region of Iraq, in December 2002, before the war, by car from Turkey, where then Senators Hagel and Joe Biden addressed the Kurdistan Regional Parliament. That's during the time of Saddam Hussein before US forces in March 2003 invaded Iraq to overthrow Saddam. 
And then again, in June 2003, Senators Biden, Hagel, and the late Senator Dick Luger were the first congressional delegation to enter Baghdad, the city beyond the airport base, after the overthrow of Saddam Hussein. I could go on with these stories. There are many. Let me just say this. As Senator and Secretary of Defense, Hegel has been involved in some of the most consequential decisions affecting the region, and I am pleased that you will all get to hear him reflect on it now. If you're listening to this podcast, you obviously care about the Middle East, and if you do, you should probably be reading El Monitor. El Monitor is a global newsroom headquartered in Washington, D.C., with a network of over 160 contributors around the world. El Monitor offers first-class reporting and analysis from a range of perspectives and an approach that represents the highest journalistic standards, as well as an award-winning commitment to press freedom and independence. If you haven't done so already, visit us at elmonitor.com, check out our articles, and sign up for our free newsletters. There's a lot to choose from, including the Week in Review, an essay that offers unusual insights and forecasts into the region based upon Elmonitor's outstanding reporting. And if you haven't done so, please subscribe to our Elmonitor podcast on your favorite podcast platform on Israel with Ben Caspit, and on the Middle East with me, Andrew Parasoliti. Welcome back to On the Middle East, and I am pleased and honored to have here is our guest, former Secretary of Defense and two-term Nebraska Senator Chuck Hagel. Sir, welcome to On the Middle East. Uh, thanks, Andrew. Uh, always a pleasure to be with you, and Appreciate the, the time today. Fantastic. Let's get right into it and let's talk about Syria. Now, you resigned as Secretary of Defense from the Obama administration. One of the reasons given was your frustration with Syria policy. There were debates at the time among those who wanted to get more deeply engaged by militarily backing the anti Assad opposition and those advocating restraint. Where, where were you in this debate, and what was your frustration with the policy? Well, uh, first, uh, I think not unlike uh, what we have today. Uh, I, I did not really see a policy. Um, we kind of meandered into some of these uh, Middle Eastern situations without really having a clear policy. I go, I go back to Bush on this when we invaded uh, needlessly, recklessly, uh, dangerously, uh, when we invaded Iraq in uh, early 2003. And the consequences that came as a result uh, of that terrible blunder, we're still living with today. So I don't think you can go back just a year or two years or six years. I think you've got to go back to that decision uh, by the Bush administration, which had actually been made, as we all know now, because of his history uh, tells the truth. That decision was made by the Bush people in 2002. No matter what, they're going to go into Iraq. And of course, uh, they lied and, and there was deception everywhere. And uh, he had no uh, weapons of mass destruction. You were there at the time with me, and you remember 
uh, Hans Blix and Alberti and uh, others coming in to brief us to say, uh, this is the UN uh, arms control group. There's no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Uh, I mean, Rafiq Hariri told us this when he was prime minister of Lebanon, all the, the leaders in the Middle East. So I go back to that time, we, we, we go in and to, to do what? Well, he didn't have weapons of mass destruction. Then the second reason we went in was to democratize the Middle East. Uh, that didn't work so well. And so we're still there, floundering, not knowing what we're doing. That then precipitated Syria and Libya uh, and all the rest uh, of a destabilized and dangerous uh, Middle East. So in my situation, when I was Secretary of Defense in uh, 2013, 2014, um, I was frustrated because I didn't think that we really had a clear a policy that I was being asked about from my counterparts, from NATO, from, from the French, the, the British, the Turks, uh, others. Uh, what, what, what is your policy? What are you going to do? One of the mistakes I think that was made when uh, uh, we decided that uh, we, we were not going to punish uh, Assad for using chemical weapons after uh, President Obama had said, there's a red line. And if you cross that red line using chemical weapons against your own people, you will, you will pay a price, essentially. Well, uh, we didn't. The complication there was, and, and again, the reality of, of, uh, of it all, and still today, is that that allowed the Russians to make a pretty clear decision and choice, easy choice, that the Americans were not going to be involved in Syria. So therefore, we opened the door for them, and they came in. As you know, they had a, a small naval base uh, on the Mediterranean, Tartus. That's all they had there. The, the, this, the Russians had been shut out of the Middle East for 30, 35 years. Uh, this allowed them to get back in because Assad needed something. He needed someone, some help. He needed an ally. This, uh, this brought the Russians in, brought the Iranians in, and, and, and then that complicated our approach to everything. Also, at the same time, we were trying to sort out the future of Iraq. And uh, in early 2014, when uh, two Sunni divisions of the Iraqi armed forces, uh, two divisions trained by, helped trained and, and equipped by the United States, dropped their weapons and ran from ISIS, a much inferior group coming across the Syrian border, which then led to the, uh, to the ISIS forces taking essentially control of Western Iraq for a couple of years and robbing the banks and taking our weapons and, uh, uh, and, and doing everything they could to destroy the Iraqi government. Um, that all plays into all of this. So now you get down into uh, 2014, and I'm, again, asked by everybody, uh, what is the United States going to do? Uh, where is the United States? As you know, we, uh, after President Obama had accepted, which President Bush signed, an agreement with Iraqi Prime Minister Maliki uh, that he, that the United States would withdraw all United States forces by 2011 because 
Prime Minister Maliki would not take a status of forces agreement to the parliament to sign. So Obama inherited that. And it wasn't Obama's fault. Obama campaigned against the Iraq war, yes. But that decision was made by Bush. Bush didn't want to make it, and he didn't want to sign it, but he had no choice. That then complicated even Syria more. So the long way around the Bush on this, yes, uh, I was frustrated that we weren't paying attention to Syria because I felt that, that whatever our policy was on Syria was essentially uh, not alone, but it, but it would have an impact on driving our entire Middle East policy. And I always felt that you couldn't have a, a policy on the Middle East uh, just by individual countries or individual situations. You had to have an overall policy and the individual situations had to fit into those. Yes, they were different. Uh, yes, they were complicated, but the, but the Middle East is complicated. And I think everybody who's ever dealt in that area understands it. Now we've got, I think, the most complicated situation ever in the Middle East. When you look at Israel and Netanyahu threatening to annex uh, all of the West Bank and uh, Golan Heights, you've got no functioning governments in, in, uh, in Yemen, in Libya, uh, barely a functioning government in Syria, uh, plus what's happening in Saudi Arabia, plus the energy crisis, COVID-19, uh, strength in uh, non-state actors uh, like ISIS, for example, and Iraq's in trouble, big trouble, and there's no stability there, no stability, plus Lebanon uh, is unstable. So I, I, this is maybe a little more generally than what you wanted, uh, but I think it all has to factor in. So I, I, had, a, I had a concern and a problem with the fact that, uh, that at that time in 2014, I didn't think we were paying attention to trying to develop a, a really coherent policy on Syria and the Middle East. Do you think that the Syrian situation today uh, would benefit from uh, more diplomacy and engagement with Russia, or do you think uh, Putin is someone we can't deal with and we need to confront in Syria and elsewhere? Well, I've always taken the position on foreign affairs, and you know this, Andrew, that uh, diplomacy is about finding uh, new creative avenues, uh, and it, it involves uh, pursuing possibilities, and that involves talking. That involves reaching out. Yes, you have your interest. Yes, you have uh, the interest of your sovereign country, but you also have the interest of your allies and your friends and global interests, uh, stability interests, economic interests, human rights interests, freedom. Um, and they all have to be factored in. And the only way you can deal with them and, and get to any resolution uh, that is meaningful and, and maybe lasting is you, is you got to deal with people. You've got to talk with people. And uh, I think this administration has so screwed all of that up uh, with the way President Trump, starting with how he's handled our allies, how he's pulled the United States out of these international engagements. Um, how he mocks international institutions that were built after World War II that have been more, more important and more beneficial to our interests than any country on earth. And when you start doing that to your own friends, to your partners, to your allies, you don't have much base underneath you. 
to negotiate with Putin or she or anybody else. I mean, we may not like Putin for what he stands for and disagree with him on many, many things, uh, but you have to deal with him. There is no other alternative unless you want to go to war. That's an alternative. I don't think it's a very good one. I don't think the American people want to take that alternative. So you don't have any, any alternative, but face it directly and, and be creative and, and do what diplomats used to do, what Jim Baker uh, uh, did. Uh, and, and what some of our, our, our most effective secretaries of state and foreign policy presidents have done over the years. Let me ask about Egypt. You were Secretary of Defense when General Abdul Fattah el-Sisi led the coup following the popular protests against uh, Morsi in 2013. And there was a debate at the time, and a debate that continues about the U.S. partnership with Egypt Everyone, I think, acknowledges its, its centrality in U.S. policy, but there's also human rights, including the treatment of journalists and detained Americans. It's been an ongoing tension. Now, I know you developed a, a close uh, connection with Sisi during that time, and I think you still uh, talk to him um, during that rocky period in U.S.-Egypt relations. It, give me your sense of, of Sisi as a leader and what's the right balance between national security and human rights in dealing with Egypt or many of our friends in the region? Yeah, it was an interesting uh, development of uh, how I got to know uh, Sisi. Um, as you know, I've been to Egypt many times. And my first trip uh, to Egypt, um, uh, it was on my first trip to the Middle East very soon after I, it was a five-nation trip, very soon after I became Secretary of Defense, um, I met with Morsi, then the president uh, of Egypt, and I met with Sisi, who then was the Minister of Defense. And um, I, I, I recall uh, coming back and writing notes on the plane back so I could brief the president uh, on what I thought of both Morsi and and. Uh, Sisi, I recall uh, that my thoughts on Morsi were, uh, I liked him, uh, and as you know, he was an American-educated American professor on the West Coast uh, before the Muslim Brotherhood uh, put him in the office uh, as he was elected president. But I, I felt he was under tremendous pressure. Uh, I felt he was very weakened. I, I didn't sense that I was talking to uh, the president of a large and important nation who really had any confidence in his own decisions or the fact that he could make his own decisions. Um, and I shared that with the president when I got back. Sisi uh, was, was supremely confident, uh, very clever, very agile, very articulate, uh, knew what he wanted to say. Uh, of course, as we know, uh, in Egypt and in those uh, Middle Eastern uh, nations, uh, the Minister of Defense, who also was a general, uh, uh, they they carry a lot of sway, uh, and and they have over, over uh, recent years. And so, yes, I mean, I wasn't surprised that Sisi was confident, but uh, I could see in him there was something else, and he didn't get into more seat. Uh, at the time, there were some 
trouble erupting in uh, Cairo and Egypt, and this is just prior to the overflow, the overthrow of, of Morsi. And uh, uh, but we, but he didn't really, really want to talk about Muslim Brotherhood or Morsi, except in the last parts of our conversation, he brought it up. He initiated uh, how dangerous the Muslim Brotherhood was, and how they may, the military may have to do something. And I said, "What do you mean, do something?" Well, I'm not saying anything dramatic. He said, and so on and so on. Well, I came back to the United States, and uh, uh, we, we were. Ann Patterson was the ambassador at the time, and she was uh, sending her cables to Kerry that she was more and more concerned. The Senator John Kerry, who was Secretary of State then, uh, more and more concerned. And I had briefed, uh, I had briefed the president on this and we were getting more and more intelligence. And then uh, the next thing we know, uh, the government is overthrown. But I, before the government was overthrown by Sisi, um, I called him. I took the initiative to call him because we had, we had said to each other, we'll stay in touch. And I called him and I said, uh, General, uh, uh, we're hearing some very disturbing news coming out of Egypt that there is a coup brewing and that you may be central to that. Well, he said, I, not really, I mean, it's not up to me, it's the people, and, and he went into a, his Abraham Lincoln speech, you know, for about 10 minutes, and um, uh, no, but we're gonna watch it very closely, you know, we're great allies, and we're not gonna let anything to our, happen to our relationship, And but these are very tense and, and, and um, terrible times for Egypt, and we have to be very careful with the internal politics. Well, uh, soon after that call, probably a week, then the whole thing exploded. Morsi was overthrown, and you know the history of the situation. Uh, we then had an emergency meeting in the National Security Council, and um, Vice President Biden was there, President Obama, of course, and National Security Advisor Rice, Secretary of State Kerry, and all the, all the players. And there was pretty strong feeling around the table that uh, we should withdraw all support for Egypt, uh, certainly our military support, economic support, uh, and send a very clear message to, to CC right now that uh, this relationship's over unless you unless you turn this around. Um, I I took a different approach. And the approach I took, and I remember exactly what I said to the president, um, if you do that, Mr. President, uh, you will eliminate every instrument of influence that you have with Sisi. Uh, no matter what, we still have influence there. Recognizing human rights, recognizing all the violations, recognizing what was beginning uh, during that time, throwing journalists in jail, and indiscriminate locking people up, students and so on. I got that. Uh, I stand behind no one in the support of human rights anywhere in the world. But I also uh, understand the realities of if you've got any hope of trying to turn it around or fix it, uh, uh, we need to be smart here. Well, uh, I agreed we should, we should pull down much all of our uh, military exercise uh, relationships and agreements. Uh, we stopped the flow of a lot of things. I think Ann Patterson and I were in agreement on this. Um, so um, <clears throat> then I called him, Cece, 
and, and by the way, uh, uh, I think Kerry had not met him before. Um, maybe he had, but I, I'm not sure. But uh, I, ca I called Cece and I got right through to him and, and asked him the question, General, what's going on? And you told me that this was not going to happen. Well, without going through too much of the detail, at the end of the conversation, after I had told him that there'd be consequences, and I assumed he, would, he knew there'd be consequences with the United States, and I can't guarantee him what those are, are going to be or if there's going to be any relationship left at all. And he was very cool and calm, and he said, well, from now on, uh, I, I'd like to deal with you. And I said, well, uh, I, I'm not the diplomatic person here, and there are other uh, senior officials I know who, who are dealing with your government and want to talk with you. But he made it very clear that he only wanted to deal with me. So um, I must have spoken to him, Andrew, more than 50 times uh, during the next few months. I spoke to him on Christmas Day. I mean, the holidays, it didn't make any difference. And, um, it, you know, just trying to bring him down, loosen up what he's doing to throwing people in jail, the arrests, uh, all that was going on. Uh, and the other part of this that you know about, and others probably do, that the Israelis were getting involved as well in this because the Egyptians and the Israelis had probably the best relationship they've ever had. And, and I think still do to this day uh, because of the Sinai and their, their, their joint uh, relationships, which produced security for both sides, especially for Israel and to have Egypt as a as a working partner, both intelligence sharing and military and security, that was huge for Israel. So obviously Israel saw their interests being challenged here and threatened, and they made it very clear that, that they hoped that we wouldn't do anything to cut off totally a relationship with Egypt. So, uh, I mean, it goes on and on and on, and we're not in too much of a different place today, actually. Uh, so. Um, that, that's a little bit of how that got started and when CC overthrew Morsi's government. Well, thank you for that. That's fantastic uh, history and really uh, clarifying and part of the record of what happened during those those trying times. Um, let me ask, we're, we're running out of time and I feel we're just getting started, actually. There, you've put so much out here uh, that I want to get into. Let me just come quickly back to Iraq. And, uh, you know, I wrote a piece a few weeks ago, and I, you and I talked about it, regarding uh, then-Senator Biden's role on the 2002 Iraq War resolution. I, I was with you at that time. And you later said uh, you regretted that vote in favor of the resolution and uh, have been uh, critical uh, of uh, the engagement there, as you were in your earlier remarks here today. And then Iraq comes back when your Secretary of Defense says ISIS overruns a good chunk of the country. And, and I, might, I, I might add that I thought the counter-ISIS coalition, which began uh, while you were Secretary of Defense, and in fact continued through the Trump administration, is, is often an unrecognized success for U.S. policy. I know you were uh, at the key table when ISIS uh, took over 
And it was a shock. And uh, it's been beaten back. And it was the result of bipartisan support. It's been the result of a US-led coalition and strong military and diplomacy uh, complement. Even though uh, ISIS is now what the Pentagon is calling a low-level insurgency, uh, do you think the U.S. should keep troops in Iraq and to fight ISIS and, and also maybe to continue our relationship to train Iraqi security forces? Well, um, I think it depends on a couple of things. Do we have an interest there? Uh, yes, we do. Uh, but the Iraqi government is, is central to this. Um, if we're going to stay there in any capacity, um, we have got to be certain, and the Iraqi government has to be very clear in what they want from us and what we're willing to do that makes uh, that makes sense. I also uh, uh, believe and always have, and you know this, that uh, allies and partners are, are so critical in these kinds of situations. And, uh, and I think over the years, especially in the Middle East, we've become more and more uh, aware of that. Does the United States have a continued role there? Um, I don't think our continued role should be to fight ISIS. Uh, uh, we can help, we can train, um, we can provide equipment, we, we can provide intelligence. Uh, I think we should have a role uh, in Iraq as an ally. I mean, we have, we have troops and we help allies all over the world. Uh, but the days of fighting for us, I mean, uh, again, I go back to the blunder of going into Iraq in uh, 2003 that's produced all this. We're not going to unwind all that. It's a, it's a reality now. So, so I don't think that we can afford to just abandon Iraq. But uh, nor should Iraq or, or anybody else look to the United States uh, after almost 20 years to continue uh, to carry out combat missions. Uh, I don't think that's our role, nor, nor should be. If Iraq is a sovereign nation that wants to continue to exist, uh, they're the ones that are gonna have to step up to this. Uh, now the complication, as we know, is Iran and the influence that Iran has in Iraq, and, and uh, there's no question <laughs> that Iran has considerable influence in Iraq. Uh, uh, I think that's a reality, and I don't, I don't think it helps us or Iraq by threatening Iraq to say, you've got to cut off all relations, commercial relations, don't buy Iranian gas, or, or we're not going to help you anymore. I mean, what does that do for our interests? What does that do for Iraq? All that does, it leaves Iraq uh, uh, even more at the mercy of Iran. And right now, I believe Iran uh, has the whip hand in that relationship. And so uh, these are complicated, but I go right back to what I said at the beginning of our conversation, Andrew. This is diplomacy. This is diplom uh, di diplomatic diplomacy at its high highest level. It takes time and smarts and working with people and negotiating and understanding, but you first have to have a clear intent. What is the objective? What is the objective? And then you factor all the imperfections into that, uh, and then you pursue it. And I don't think we've had clear objections or objectives uh, in the Middle East, uh, uh, certainly since 2003. I think all of our objectives have, have been wobbly. 
I don't blame, uh, and I say this not just because I was in the Obama administration, but I don't blame the Obama administration for not necessarily having clear objectives uh, throughout that time. I think we could have done a lot better and should have done a lot better and been clear. But the Middle East is so fractured that unless you get everybody uh, in, into it, talking with each other, and that, that means Putin, that means the players, um, I don't think you're ever going to see any resolution, not just regionally, but country by country. I mean, you tell me if, if I'm missing something in one of the countries there. Saudi Arabia continues uh, to weaken, uh, making huge mistakes. No matter where you go in the Middle East, you, you, you've got problems. And so I think the only way is for is for a president of the United States, and I think the United States still can lead, must lead in the world, I think is the centerpiece of world affairs. Now, if President Trump wants to give that up, if Americans say, no more, we don't want to do that anymore, then that's their decision. But it will come at our peril. It will come at a terrible, terrible risk and consequences for this country if we do that. Let me end on um, a political question, if I could. Uh, you're supporting uh, Joe Biden for president. I know you, you know him well. Uh, you worked with him closely in the Senate, in the Obama administration, traveled to the Middle East, the region we're talking about many times. Uh, tell us a little about um, your uh, assessment of Senator Biden, former Vice President Biden, in terms of national security issues and his engagement in the region? Uh, yes, Senator Biden uh, uh, and I worked together for 12 years, as you know, in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Uh, I traveled all over the world with him. You were on some of those trips. Uh, uh, I got to know him very, very well. I got to know him, yes, professionally as a fellow United States Senator, as a fellow member of the Foreign Relations Committee, as a leader in the Senate, but I got to know him personally. Uh, I got to see what this guy is about, what makes him tick. Uh, you know, you can often get to know somebody and tell a lot about somebody uh, when no one else is around, how they react when the cameras are not on them. And th that's the real measure of how, how you figure somebody out. Uh, the times I spent with him in the Obama administration, first as co-chairman of the president's intelligence advisory board for four years before I became secretary of defense for two years. Worked with him for six years during that time. Uh, worked closely with him. I don't think there's an American today that understands foreign policy as well as Joe Biden, as effective as Joe Biden. His personal style, his personal relationships, his respect for everybody's opinion foreign leaders respected. Uh, that's not the only reason I'm supporting him for president, but certainly it's a big one. Uh, I, I think what we've seen in this country is four years of complete fiasco in foreign relations, dangerously so. And if we don't turn this around, I think this country is going to be in, in the world in, in, real, in real trouble. The United States is the center of gravity in the world, uh, whether people like that or not. It doesn't mean that we're God's chosen few or we're better than anybody else? No, but we have a system. And that system is an amazing system that allows us to self-correct and bring allies around us, and we have good people, we always have. And we believe in human rights. 
and dignity and freedom for all people. Pretty powerful when you add all that up. So for all those reasons and a lot more, I'm, I'm strongly supporting Joe Biden. And I think he, if he's elected, he'll come at a right time in, in the world. Well, sir, thank you. This has been a fantastic conversation. Uh, I've learned a lot. You've shared a lot about your personal experiences as, as a leader and statesman uh, involved with the Middle East and your insight and, and wisdom in how the Middle East works, including the value of uh, relationships and collective action uh, to deal with uh, the, the huge challenges and problems we've been discussing. So thank you again for, for taking the time. It's been a real pleasure talking with you. Well, Andrew, it's, it's my pleasure. And I just want to compliment you and El Monitor for the work you do. Uh, I read everything you, you guys put out, all your interviews. It really is excellent. And uh, uh, you, you do a great service uh, to the world, uh, and especially to people who want to be informed, but also leaders who uh, re rely on your reporting and what you guys do. So uh, thank you and your team. Thank you for that. Great spending time with you. I will be right back with a few concluding thoughts. I'm Ben Kaspit, Al Monitor veteran columnist reporting from Israel, one of the world's major news and action suppliers of all times, comparing to its tiny size. I've been covering and analyzing the political, diplomatic, and military arenas in Israel for over 34 years. My best-selling biography, The Netanyahu Years, was out two years ago. I covered seven prime ministers, one major war, two intifadas, one prime minister's assassination, two and a half peace treaties, four military operations in Gaza, and it's not letting up anytime soon. I'm glad to invite you to On Israel, our brand new podcast, where we will discuss major events in Israel and its surroundings, talk to decision makers, leaders and analysts, and try to understand the chaos that comes with the territory of Israel and the Middle East. You will never have a dull moment with us. See you soon here on Israel, Al Monitor. Welcome back. A few concluding thoughts. Former Secretary Hegel expressed his reservations about Russian President Vladimir Putin, but also made clear that diplomacy involves finding common ground, even when it seems there may be none, or you don't like your adversary and what he stands for. And that is certainly the case with Russia and Russia's policy in Syria. But there may now be an opportunity for diplomacy. For Putin, the costs in Syria have gone up, not because the Syria engagement is a quagmire, as some like to say, because for Putin, it's been a success. He saved Assad, secured and expanded uh, Russia's influence and basing in Syria, and showed the region that he, Putin, and Russia stand by its ally, Assad. But the pressure on Putin is now coming from a huge drop in oil prices, a result of the disastrous Russia-Saudi price war and the economic consequences of, that COVID-19 uh, have had on Russia. And it's made the Syrian intervention 
more costly, and there's no end in sight. A sinkhole, really, as I describe it in a column this week. Putin, therefore, might be in the mood for some burden sharing, and the U.S. should test him, including about how to limit Iran's role in Syria. Now, that's been a long-standing priority for the United States. And it's also a shared concern of the U.S., Israel, the Gulf, and Turkey, and maybe now Russia, too. And the bigger picture, absent a breakthrough in U.S.-Russia coordination, it's really hard to imagine Syria getting any better, uh, especially for Syrians. We're in the ninth year of the war. Situation's dire. There are 5 million refugees, 6.2 million internally displaced Syrians combined. That's about half of a pre-war population of 22 million. The economy, because of war, corruption, sanctions, barely exists for Syria's children. These nine years of war have been a lost generation. And there's, of course, the risk of conflict among U.S., Russian, Iranian, Syrian, and Turkish forces. All are in Syria as well as what remains of of ISIS and Al-Qaeda-linked terrorist groups. Turkey, the U.S. NATO ally, where the U.S. and Turkey have had some differences over Syria policy. But for Turkey, Syria is a costly and seemingly endless occupation, a potential two-front conflict against Syrian forces in Idlib, which is in the northwest of Syria, but that conflict could flare up again, and uh, with the Kurds in the northeast in the area that Turkey occupies. That's why we wrote back in February and again last week, the next best step to end the war in Syria is probably an urgent conversation between U.S. President Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin about Syria. Both men, of course, have other things on their mind for sure, but the time for a talk on Syria and about Iran in Syria may finally be close. The personal connection between Trump and Putin matters. The Syrian crisis to ever be resolved, urgently requires collective action and a functioning UN Security Council. And that begins with the US and Russia finding some common ground, again, if it's possible. Well, thank you again for listening to On the Middle East. I thank our our guest, former Secretary of Defense Chuck Hagel for just a wonderful conversation about the region. Please sign up and listen to On the Middle East and On Israel with Ben Caspit at your favorite podcast platform. I look forward to being with you next week. I'm Andrew Parasoliti. Thank you for listening. 